Uh, if you'd like to grab a Bible, um, there are some on your pews or uh, in your devices, and um, we are going to be reading today from Mark chapter 5 and from verse 25 to uh, 34. You will seem awfully far away. I'm, I'm coming closer to you, but there are also lots of empty seats at the front. Imagine it's a concert. It's not a concert, but imagine it was. You'll be rushing to the railing. Uh, and, and, and not, not the back. So if you'd like to rush to the railing, you're very welcome to you. Otherwise, I'll get closer and closer to you. I'll end up, I'll end up sort of preaching halfway down the aisle here at the front. So um, you might want to adjust the camera, Jonathan. I don't know. But I know that sort of some, some semblance of me will be on the screen if someone's watching. Otherwise, it'd be odd. It'd be a voice and nobody. Right. Um, here we go. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is the um, final talk in our series on uh, encountering Jesus. And, uh, you know, I was actually going to preach on the woman uh, with perfume uh, that, that attended to Jesus because I kind of wanted to finish this series by thinking about our response to Jesus. But I really, when I was praying uh, about preparing this talk, I really felt I wanted to actually press in again a little bit more to this uh, desire for encounter, particularly um, the desire for reality and transformation in our lives. And um, I think it'd be quite easy to move into, and we all need to be really grateful and pull perfectly on the feet of Jesus. And actually, I I just don't feel we've quite realized the expectation that we should have for encounter with Jesus. And therefore, we may be missing a little of the hunger we might have towards this kind of encounter. When we hear the word mourn, I typically find people think about people wearing black or wailing at a graveside, maybe civilians in a war zone, someone whose home has been struck by a bomb, and surely those are clear illustrations of grief, but they aren't actually the whole picture. Even in the most tragic circumstances, we can feel really inhibited to grieve. And and I've actually, over the years, officiated a number of really, really tragic Uh, funerals. Uh, I mean, unbelievably tragic funerals. And even there, I've seen people restrain themselves from crying or showing any emotion, as if crying or showing any emotion at a funeral is somehow wrong. It should be prohibited. There was some sort of sign of weakness. And I I wonder whether, despite our narrow definition of grief and our resistance to mourning, many of us will be carrying some significant grief today. And it may be that we're maybe silently mourning behind a smile. This woman in Mark 5 was grieving, and you know, I think we need to think about grief in, in, the, in the broadest of terms here. 
she was most obviously grieving uh, 12 years of menstrual bleeding. But, but as with many of the griefs that we carry, there are griefs behind griefs. So we think about this woman approaching Jesus. We don't know very much about her. It's a very small story. You might think this story is insignificant because the real story of healing is going to come after this story, which is that Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, which is pretty phenomenal. But actually, this story is the really serious story. Now, in, in the grading of the stories, yes, they're both very significant healing stories. But if you were looking for a story that was going to tell you something about the kingdom of God something really, really significant, something really, really profound and really necessary, and something that's really going to transform your life, it's actually not going to be Jairus' daughter, it's going to be the woman bleeding. And it looks like a side note, but as many things in the New Testament appear, a side note is actually the big note, it's the main event. And, and so hold on to the side note, because here's a woman who's grieving, clearly grieving, bleeding, but she's actually mourning other things. She's mourning not being able to have children. She's mourning complete social exclusion. She's mourning not being able to attend the temple because of the prohibitions in Leviticus 15.3. She was mourning the loss of her status in society. Uh, she was mourning all the finances that she spent on doctors who failed to heal her. And she's mourning a loss of social relationships. This woman's circumstances are so holistically negative, you couldn't make it up. Like, think about the reality of someone who, who's... Whose, whose illness itself creates such significant social exclusion that they are now penniless and pitiless and on the streets. You know, and, and that's why you see this great juxtaposition in Mark's gospel between Jairus, who's this really, really powerful, really significant kind of noble character who's got money and influence, and then this lady, this kind of side note in the story. Jesus is saying, hey, hold on. Something's going on here. We need to draw our attention in to the mourners. I, I, I want to challenge you to think that, that grief isn't something that's reserved for the death of a loved one. It, it's also our experience when our dreams are left unrealized. Maybe today you can relate, relate directly to this woman, that, that actually through singleness or physical health issues or, or, or some other circumstance, you're unable to have a biological child of your own. That's a, a real grief. Maybe you can recognize other griefs, though, in your life, that you aren't going to realize your career dream or get the promotion you're working towards, that you haven't maybe found a stable relationship at this stage of your life, or that your partner isn't the person you believed they were when you first married them, that your family isn't going to affirm your successes like you hoped that they would, and maybe it's simply that you didn't make it into the worship group or the sports team. Well done, Will Bennett. Fantastic. You made it. <laughs> it when I, when I club all those things together, some of you just not sit comfortably with that. You'll be like, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't fit well with me. I don't, like, I don't like the frivolousness with the sort of seriousness. It feels wrong. And lots of Brits would agree with you. That is absolutely wrong. It's kind of irreligious to group together, not getting into the sports team with the loss of a loved one. You know, we, we have this idea that grief has these kind of clear parameters that that makes it acceptable grief, or it could be labeled grief. But even then we're thinking, well, can I cry at this kind of level of grief, or do I have to hold back? Is there a stage by which we might be able to express some emotion about what we've lost? You may be thinking that these small things are, are just disappointments. But let's be real. You know, a disappointment is when your boiled egg is a little too hard in the morning, or your cinema seats are a little bit too far back. 
That, that's a disappointment. A grief is when we had an aspiration for something, a hope that was not being realized or, or something that's been dashed on the rocks of life. When we can begin to acknowledge our grief, when we can begin to accept our season of mourning, that's when we begin to find a fresh encounter with Jesus. I mentioned before, I had a catastrophic back injury uh, a few years ago in 2016. And um, working in ministry and having a mental health issue around anxiety, I found that physical exercise was a brilliant way of processing my emotions. So I go for really long runs, and somehow I sort of had this sense that I'm sort of purging my body of all these burdens, and my mind would be kind of working through, and I'd feel physically exhausted, which was helpful because you'd be able to relax and unwind because you're kind of like exhausted, and therefore, you know, your body and your mind felt like they were in sync. When I was a kid, my dad said, do you ever sit down? (laughs) Can you ever just, can you just sit down and relax? And I was like, no, I'm going to do some sports. Um, And... um, I had this back injury, and, and I had an emergency surgery, and my surgeon met me for my sort of post-surgery briefing, and I remember he, he, he sort of looked very intently in my eyes, and he said, Will, you must never run again, and he was sort of said it with such sort of seriousness and earnestness, and I was like, okay, he's like, if you run again, I will see you again, and if I see you again, there will be another surgery, and that probably won't end up as well as this one did. But I remember being so grateful for being able to walk, which at one point was hanging in the balance, that my leg still worked, that I was like, I was just like, yeah, fine, no worries, I'm absolutely fine. I'm just so grateful that I can still function. It's great. I'm so blessed. And, and, and I thought that was it. I thought that, the, that the, my grief story was, was done. You know, I'm better, I'm healed, I'm good, I'm in great shape, you know, I'm, I'm functioning. That's fantastic. But... But when I, when I started walking my old running route, I suddenly realized that I'd not resolved my grief at all. Because when people started running past me, I had this real urge to stick out my leg <laughs> and, 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 and knock them over, trip them up, push them into the river. I, I, I felt this sort of deep anger kind of rising up in me, this sort of sense of injustice and frustration and hollowness. There I was sort of diminishing my experience because I'm claiming a blessing. You know, so many of us in the church diminish our grief experience because we claim a blessing, and so we deny our reality. You know, we think, oh, you know, I'm just so blessed. I'm so better off than the kids in this IJM video. You know, we are not called to be comparative in our grief. Like, there will be a thousand, thousand people in the world who are so much worse off than you, you couldn't make it up. There will be a million people in a terrible, destitute circumstance which will make you feel ashamed of your comfortability. But that does not mean that what you're suffering and what you're going through is not your reality and is somehow not painful. God doesn't say that your grief is comparative. He doesn't say, buck up, pull up your bootstraps because over there they're really having a tough time. I remember when I was a teenager, my, I love my parents a bit, they're absolutely amazing, but I do remember having a conversation. I broke up with a, a girl I was with for quite a long time at school. I remember being quite sad and um, moping around as only teenagers can. And, and I do remember having a kitchen conversation with my mum, which went along the lines of, it was re- really much harder in the war, you know. 
And I, I just remember that kind of like, oh, hold on a minute. Like, I'm sure it was tougher in the war, but actually I'm suffering, I'm hurting right now. You know, it felt, I felt sort of, oh, wow, this comparative between the war and my broken heart. You know, I felt ashamed that I was sad, but actually that was, sadness was my reality. You know, have you ever stubbed your toe? I came downstairs a little while ago and I walked straight into the coffee table with, like, bare feet. I was like, oh, that hurts. But then you try and tell anyone else that you stubbed your toe and they're like, what are you going on about, big wuss? You know, just because comparatively it wasn't serious doesn't mean it's not painful. Like, you experience emotional pain and disappointment every day. That's a reality. It doesn't make it unpainful because it's comparatively small. And the same is true with grief. If you're experiencing grief, just because it, it's a grief that might be a smaller grief, it doesn't mean it's not grief. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be addressed. You know, we, we rarely mourn circumstances because we, we don't believe our circumstances are worthy of mourning. And so we get congested with our own disappointments. And we find ourselves living out of grief that hasn't been resolved. And we find ourselves pushing and burying things down, just trying to happy our way through life. We rarely mourn as well because our circumstances don't provide a framework where it's safe to do so. You know, you, you, you feel there's impending judgment on your complaint. Like Christians are just supposed to be joyful and happy and positive and say how blessed they are. Amen. Praise the Lord. As a clergy person, you so often find, you know, you, you're supporting people through difficult circumstances and you see them and, and it's how you're doing and they smile. They're like, yeah, great. Amen. You go, but in the week, you know, on the phone, when we're talking, oh yeah, praise God, a victory. I've got a victory. And you're like, are we there yet? Are we at the victory bit yet? I don't, I'm not sure we're there right now. And I think it's because of a shame. You know, a sense that somehow if I acknowledge my grief, I'm disappointing God or letting the team down. When God's come to meet us in our grief. The woman with bleeding had lived in grief for 12 years. The law prohibited her from going to the temple, which in the time was the place for healing, physical, spiritual, social, and cultural. That was the medical center of the first century. And yet the law said that a woman bleeding wasn't allowed to enter into the temple courts. But God's Spirit offers us the right context for recovery. He offers two essential supports, if you like, comfort and provision. I like to think about grief like a balloon. If I had one here, I'd blow it up right now. Because, because it's both full and empty at the same time. When, when you're dealing with grief, you feel full of grief, but you also feel completely hollow. It's such a weird experience. You're like full and empty at the same time. Grief is like this great balloon that's sort of inflated within us. It's taking up so much space, yet also it's kind of hollowed out. And we need to kind of let the air out. But, but we can't let the air out on our own. We, we need a collective environment in order that we can experience comfort. We need the provision of release, but we need the comfort of collegiality. We need to be together to grieve. 
And this is what I'd call grief CPR. It's comfort and provision recovery. And that's really what Jesus offers, the comfort and the provision. He does the clinical work of provision, like what do I need to release the pressure, but also what do I need in order to be safe in the framework? How can I, I can breathe again? How can my heart like, live again in this context? In Mark 5, in verse 28, the, the lady says, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Because what's going on in this setting is that the lady knows if she touches a rabbi and she's having a period, he becomes unclean. So she, she decides in her head not to touch the rabbi because that would defile the rabbi in the Levitical season, but, but actually just to touch his clothes. So she's kind of working out a way, how can I deal with my grief without creating any shame? Which is really interesting in itself because you're thinking, wow, this woman is in dire straits after 12 years of this experience and she's still thinking, how can I do the right thing without upsetting anybody? And the Greek word for healing that's used here is the word sozo. But sozo doesn't just mean a physical healing. It doesn't mean like, I just need my period to end. Sozo is, is a there's a word in the Greek which means to be made whole. We haven't really got a great English translation, but to, to be sozoed is to be made complete again. And, and this woman does not just need a physical healing to be made complete again. That would be so reductive, so physicalized. She needs so much more. The woman with bleeding is a penniless, nameless outcast her grief was more than anemia and cramps and exhaustion, as terrible as those were. She needed, she needed more than a physical healing. She needed this biopsychosocial spiritual restoration. She needed the whole package. Like everything in her life had fallen apart as a result of this grief. And when we carry unresolved griefs, they can eat away at our God-given identity. Where there's loss, there often follows blame. Internally, we begin to believe that we're responsible and carry the shame of loss as much as the grief of it. You know, oh, oh I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm still crying. Oh, I, I know I'm down at the moment, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to get there. Have you found yourself saying these kind of things? Have you, have you heard other people say to you, you, you were not over it yet, six months ago. Can't believe you're still looking sad. I was chatting to Barney earlier on, he's... He, is a, is a medic and he's saying that, that there's, a, there's a new classification in one of the big statistical diagnostic manuals which suggests that, that extended grief disorder is a sort of a new diagnosis which, which starts at six months. So if you're, if you're like five months and 29 days, you're all good and normal. But if you get to six months, then you're suddenly struggling with extended grief disorder and there's something wrong with you. I don't think we ever stop grieving. I just think our grief changes. You love someone, you're hurt by their loss. Yes, their grief goes through different phases. If you want to know more, look at some Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on cycles of death and dying. Our grief augments and transforms, and it ultimately can become fruitful ground. But actually, grief is our experience. We, we lose, and that loss changes us. But we're not responsible for grief. We're not called to be ashamed of our grief. We're called to actually acknowledge it, to reflect on it, and to, to live in it, and to seek God's presence in it. 
The women with bleeding lived in a culture that shamed women. The Hebrew word for menstruation is nihar, which literally means cast out, banned, separated, and moved away. Pretty unpleasant, isn't it, when you think about that? That reality, the half of the population are nihar. You're ashamed. It's a shame on you. Be separated. So here's a woman that for 12 years had been living in that state. Roman culture was equally hostile. Roman philosopher and author Pliny the Elder blamed women's blood for turning new wine sour, making crops wither, killing grafts, drying seeds, killing bees, rusting iron and bronze. I'm just saying, I mean, you know, it's a pretty hostile culture. This is a woman who's living in a very, very hostile culture with a disorder which is propagating unmitigated grief. Such was the woman's shame that after 12 years of innocence in this culture, she approaches Jesus from the back of the crowd, avoiding his glance. But by avoiding his face, she also avoids a recovery. Dr. John Townsend said, this is why God put tear ducts in our eyes. Someone should be looking at us when we cry. Then we know we're not alone. Our tears are seen as well as heard. Biologically speaking, the tears that you shed when you're crying emotionally are materially different to the tears that you shed when your eyes are cleaning themselves. So when you chop onions, you cry through your tear ducts, very, very thin tears which wash away your, the chemicals that are, are touching your eyes and, and therefore your eyes become clean again. But when you're crying emotionally, your tears are more viscose than eye-cleaning tears and therefore they track down your face in droplets in a very defined way at quite a slow pace. If you explored them, you would find that they are fundamentally different. And there can only be one reason for that, is that God designed your tear ducts in order that someone might see your tears and respond to them socially. Tears are designed, emotional tears are designed to be experienced in community. And God's put us together in the church in order that our tears might be acknowledged. That's why it's such an irony that people would not cry when they're grieving. That God has given us the facility to say, I am here to comfort you. And of this woman, Jesus was not about to let this woman with bleeding escape by seeing just the back of his head. That wouldn't have been the healing that, that she needed. She needed a far greater healing. Many of us carry our griefs with shame. Maybe you carry a sense of shame around singleness or childlessness or unemployment or financial difficulties. And in this perfectionistic culture, we can try and approach Jesus in the crowd, hoping just to touch the hem of his cloak for an immediate healing to our circumstances. You know, it, I'm just going to pray this privately. I'm not going to tell my life group about any of this stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them when something great happens, but I won't ask them to pray for me about any of this other stuff that really matters to me because I just feel bad. Many of us will have said things like, I feel self-indulgent, another brilliant British trait. I feel like I'm drawing attention to myself or I don't want to start moaning. God cares about this stuff. Are we going to touch the hem of his cloak to try and avoid his face or are we actually coming face to face and saying, Jesus, I'm an addict. Help me. I don't live in shame anymore about the stuff that we're really struggling with here. 
This is the contrast between a life of mourning, lived under a crown of ashes where your dreams are reduced to dust, and a crown of beauty which is a sign of restoration, the restoration of your dignity. The oil of joy was not a perfume for the sign of honor. It's not what has been lost. It's how you've been made to carry joy, to be anointed, that your face might shine, anointed with tears, anointed with oil, anointed with perfume. We might see one another again. When Jesus realizes the power has gone out of him, he could have let the woman walk away. You know, as a pastor, I'm like going to advise Jesus right now, uh, here's a woman on her period, Jesus, and uh, it's really inappropriate to like, raise that in public. Uh, here is a massive group of men, and I would say this is the worst opportunity to raise the fact that this is a woman having a period. So if we could just avoid that in public, that would be really helpful. And I'll just, this is just you know, a point of well-being. So we're going to just we'll shield the woman from any public scrutiny. We will not mention periods at this point in the story. And we'll let the woman get away quickly and discreetly, having received a healing from you. That's my advice to Jesus. Because that would be the right thing to do, right? Because, you know, we wouldn't bring any sort of public scrutiny to this woman. Jesus does something totally radically different. Jesus, who's in a massive crowd of people who are all pushing in on him, this great kind of rabbi, this huge rabble around him, stops, turns around, and says, who touched me? The disciples are like going, everyone's touching you, Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? Jesus is like saying, no, no, someone's touched me. Ah, the woman with the period. It's you. Now, it seems so unpastoral. But Jesus cares more for this woman than we do. He wants to reveal this woman to the crowd and her grief for specific reasons for a healing. Because the woman wanted to secretly take a healing from Jesus, but Jesus wanted to publicly give the woman more than a healing. He didn't want the woman to rush away, having not seen his face. He wanted the woman to rush away with a full, complete wholeness. Who touched my clothes, he asks, and she comes trembling in fear. Have you ever wondered why? Why would she come to Jesus trembling in fear? Why was she so afraid? Well, she's so afraid because she's effectively defiled the rabbi. She's thinking, this guy's going to have a massive go at me in public, in front of all these people. So she's expecting judgment, as many of us do when we address our grief. Oh, oh they'll tell me off. They'll make me feel stupid. Or I'm so weak, why am I still crying? Her, her grief is this shame pressing in on her, and she falls at Jesus' feet, expecting a punishment. She's carrying the spirit of heaviness, so common to those of us who grieve. She's touched the great rabbi's clothes, surely she's defiled him. Yet Jesus removes the cloak of grief from her shoulders and replaces it with this garment of praise, saying, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. Now, remember the widow's might of all the people in the temple who had faith? This lady's faith is greater than all. Here, this unclean, in inverted commas, woman with bleeding, penniless and pitiless, on the street, daughter, your faith has healed you. Amazing. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. What has Jesus done to restore the woman's grief? Firstly, he calls her daughter which lifts her out of grief and loss and gives her the comfort of her family, the one thing she really needs again. Remember, this childless woman, this husbandless woman, she is restored to family. You're my daughter, the first thing. I'm placing you in a family. 
Secondly, he commends her faith. Your faith has healed you. Which lifts at the shame of spiritual blame, this is all your fault, and actually gives her spiritual honor in front of all these people. This woman, her faith has healed her, faith in me. Thirdly, he announces her healing. Uh, go in peace and be free from your suffering. Your faith has healed you. Now, this is really important because everyone saw this woman and knew she was unclean. Remember the lepers? Jesus said, go to the temple and get approval from the rabbi that you have been clean, cleansed in order that you can re-enter the temple. So the woman goes to Jesus. He announces, the lady with the period, it's not happening anymore. She's clean. She's healed. That means you can go into the temple. So everyone's like going, oh, okay, she is healed. She's like got this massive sign, healed. Suddenly, she's not unclean anymore. So he announces her healing, reestablishes her place in society and community. No one's saying, oh, that dirty lady, don't want to be near her anymore. Everyone's saying, oh, come with us. You're part, you know, part of the community again. Then he commissions her to go, go, he says, go in peace, which gives her the dignity of a mission and a purpose. You know, for so long, she's been just looking for this one thing, if I could just get this healing. But now Jesus is saying, hold on, you've received a healing, now go in peace. Can you imagine what that must feel like? Restored to the dignity of purpose. Here you are, go again, there's something more for you. He establishes a spiritual countenance by proclaiming peace over her life. Can you imagine what it must be like to hear Jesus say, go in peace? That'd be amazing. Every week we say, you know, peace be with you, but I just really like to hear Jesus say that to me. Go in peace, Will van der Hart. And that'd be lovely. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Go in peace. She's like, she's had so much turmoil, so much pain for so long, and now she's received this special word of peace from Jesus. And then he commands freedom from suffering, which is more of a supernatural and social command as it is directed to her. Be freed from your suffering. And I reckon what's going on here is that this isn't about the woman. This is about the community. Jesus is basically saying, all of you lot, free this woman from her suffering. He's not saying to the woman, be free from your suffering. He's saying to them, free her from her suffering. It's a word of warning. Because they've been living in condemnation against her. And now he's saying, be freed from your suffering. He's like he's wrapped up everything that this woman's experiencing in this community. And he's, he's making this great statement. You're free. You're healed. Now be freed from the suffering which has been imposed against you in so many different ways. It's very powerful. This is much more than raising a little girl from the dead. And not, that's not a big deal. I'm just saying, this is a really big deal because this is about being raised from an emotional and spiritual death. Many of us need this sort of resurrection in our lives. It's like, I want all of this. I want the whole story. I want this whole, I want this over my life. Daughter or son, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And this is the nature of the kingdom of God and, and the king. Me and Tasha had a lovely chat earlier. We were chatting about, how do we know that God is good? And I was saying to her, I hope this is okay. Yeah, okay. So I, I was just saying, yeah, I'm not going to tell her everything. I'm not going to say everything that she said to me. It was all really good. It was all really good. But 
but, but one of the questions Sasha asked me was a really helpful question. Can I just applaud her? And there's a number of people in the church at the moment who are just asking good questions. Ask good questions. Just keep asking. This is so important. How do we know that God is good? And I kept saying, I know that God is good because God is Jesus. And if I want to know more about the nature of God, I look at the ministry of Jesus and I go, that is good. And this is really, really good. So the nature of Jesus is to do this work of complete restoration. It's so powerful that, that Jesus is on the way to heal the daughter of this really prominent, really wealthy, really significant individual, and that he stops to heal the least significant person in society at the time. And it's like, this is the complete, it's not that Jairus' daughter didn't matter. If you're a multimillionaire in the room, you still matter to Jesus. It's just that actually, to Jesus, this woman mattered just as much. And your grief might be comparatively small, but it matters just as much to Jesus that you've stubbed your toe and if you've got a major back surgery coming up. Like your grief, your suffering, your pain matters to Jesus. Jesus is on his way to raise a 12-year-old girl from death, but before that, he releases a woman of 12 years of social, psychological, and physical death. It's a complete picture, isn't it? I'm like, wow, I really want to encounter Jesus more when I read this story. It's like it makes me really excited to go, Wow, how can I live a life filled with grief if I'm not living it with Jesus? And how can I see so much suffering and grief in my world and not want to introduce other people to that encounter with Jesus too? Your griefs, your griefs may be as hidden as this woman. They may be as secret as this woman's. They may seem socially insignificant as this woman's did at the time. But to God, I think they're urgent, they're significant, and they're worthy of that sozo touch. And more than that, God's supernatural work in the life of one of us has a supernatural impact on the lives of many of us. You know, when you bring a testimony about what God has done in your life because you've revealed a grief, it's an encouragement to us all. It transforms our community and it transforms our world. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. It's like, it's so true. It's such a kingdom principle that he chose you know, this kind of circumstance to really shame people who are all about the learning and bullish about this, that, and the other. And it's like, wow, this woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You know, God chose this woman to transform the experience of menstruation across the world. This woman. Now, you want to think about sociologically, you want to find out something about the history of women's periods? I know all very graphic. This woman transformed your experience. Every woman in the room, identify with this woman right now because she transformed your experience. This one woman in history, let me tell you why. As a result of Jesus' interaction with the woman with bleeding, the Greek and Syriac churches chose to protect women from religious and social exclusion during their periods. They chose to change the fundamental fabric of social doctrine to incorporate women in acts of worship during their periods. That was as a result of this interaction with this one nameless, pitiless lady. Then, this was affirmed across the church in 601 
AD when Pope Gregory universally stated that women should not be kept out of the church or away from holy communion during their periods. Why? Because the spirit of the sovereign Lord was upon Jesus to provide for those who grieve in Zion. It's amazing, isn't it? Like think about 601, so we're talking about 1,500 years ago, Pope Gregory's like, look, anyone with any prejudice against women who are having a period about the communion, which was a deal, you're all wrong. Because look how Jesus interacted with this woman. Transformed experience. So we can all relate to that today because your lives have been changed because of what Jesus did then. That's the power of the kingdom of God at work. And that shows you that God cares not just about the kingdom in the air, but also the kingdom on the land. He cares about heaven, but he also cares about our presence. He cares about how we live, how the kingdom can change society, how it can include, as we've seen with the IJM video today, that the work of restoring dignity to those who grieve in Zion is our work collectively to be his hands and feet, to say to others, your faith has healed you, go in peace. Be liberated from your suffering. The temple of God could not and would not be out of reach for any of the poor or the marginalized or the stigmatized or the sick, the mentally ill, the disabled, the woman with bleeding. And the temple of God, Jesus Christ, he's just not out of reach for any of us today. He's certainly not out of reach for you in your grief. I really don't want you to sort of jolly yourself along to church anymore. You know, don't try and jolly yourself into church like, I love jolly people, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to like come in here and go, quick, put on your sad faces, Will's looking. <laughs> I just want you to think, like, how, if, we, if we're hiding in plain sight, how are we going to find the healing that we're looking for? You know, if we're hiding in plain sight, how are we going to see the sort of transformation that God really wants to offer us? If we're hiding in plain sight, how is it ever going to transform the society that's filled with griefs? that's suffocating in grief, that's so congested in its emotions because actually things have become prohibited again. God has come in Jesus to come for all who mourn and provide for all who grieve. He's come for a face-to-face encounter with you and he's come for a face-to-face encounter with me. Why don't we stand as we respond? You might just want to hold out your hands just as a, a, a sort of opportunity to offer to God some of those things that come to mind when I say the word grief. Some of these, some of these things will be very, very heavy. Some things maybe will a, a little lighter. That's okay. Don't, don't begin to compare. Just say, God, you know, this is what I'm going through right now. You know, I just want to acknowledge this is a grief to me. Jesus, I'm, I'm bringing this to you today, my grief, big and small, different things, Lord, that have wounded me, loss I've experienced, disappointments I'm facing. I thank you, Jesus, that you care for me, that you want to restore me, offer me sozo healing, a wholeness that I can't even see for myself today. I want to offer you these things and I want to pray for a touch of your Holy Spirit.
Come, Lord Jesus, into my circumstances. Restore me. Oh, I long to receive the word of peace that you spoke over that woman. I want to receive your peace today. I don't want to rush away, Father, from my pain, but I want to invite you in. Come, Lord, and stand with me face to face. See my tears. Restore my heart, Lord. The Holy Spirit is moving. Just let the Spirit do his work. Don't rush it. Don't press it. Don't push it away. Just invite the Spirit. Just increase his presence. He's just identifying things that he longs for you to bring to him. Stuff that you need to acknowledge. We'd love to pray for you. We're going to just give it a little space to worship and pray. Wait on the Lord. And um, just while Laura plays, and maybe there's a few people who are happy to pray with you directly if you'd like to come to the side and receive prayer. But don't, don't rush into worship. Just, just stay in a spacious place. Just do business with God. And then if you'd like prayer, just come to the side and we'll pray for you.